Hi everybody, JP here with Dr. Ann Stroink, current president of the AANS, who's here to tell us about some of the exciting features at this year's plenary session at the AANS meeting in Los Angeles later this month. Well, our meeting is going to be uh, start at 5 p.m. at the plenary session Friday night, so we're hoping everybody will fly in and get there on time because it's going to be very interesting. It's a two-hour event, and it's focused on neurosurgeons that advocate, as advocates. And I think everyone will see that throughout the plenary, speakers were chosen particularly in terms of how they're tied to significant advocacy for neurosurgeons and the patients we serve. During the plenary, we are offering late-breaking papers, such as the intracortical BCCI for high-performance brain-to-text communications, and Jamie Henderson's going to deliver that lecture. The Roton Family Lecture will showcase the advocacy work of the late neurosurgeon Al Roton and discuss ongoing digitalization of his work and how we're going to use that to expand education for all neurosurgeons worldwide. We're also going to introduce the inaugural Distinguished Advocate Award. Listeners at this meeting will hear about Charlie Plant, who was our first lobbyist for neurosurgery. And Tony Asher will give a talk on clinical data registries and how this benefits patients uh, to celebrate uh, this, this new award. And then also there'll be a segment on concussions that nobody can miss, and that's, that, that includes uh, NFL Roger Goodell, who will join us um, for a panel discussion, along with Margot Petukian, who's the chief medical officer for Major League Soccer. I think there's a, there's a lot of things that we can learn from the NFL and vice versa, but also people haven't really addressed women concussions to any significant degree. And Having Margot there to support some of the things that she sees in soccer might uh, start tweaking everybody's interest of where we need to be in the future. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm actually in Vail, Colorado at the Rockies neurosurgical meeting. It has been fantastic. The snow is great, meeting a lot of nice folks. And I happen to run in to someone I hadn't seen in a while. Uh, his name's Alan Efron. And Alan, when did we first meet? Was it 92 or? I think it was probably, yeah, 1992 or three. You were chief like resident in 92? Yeah. Uh, I think 93 to 94. Is okay. So Alan Efron was, uh, he did his residency at Stanford and I'll let him introduce himself. But when he was a chief resident, I was a medical student. And at the time, as some of you know, I was interested in dermatology. I was going to be a dermatologist. All my research was there. But uh, Steve Chang and Alan convinced me to go into neurosurgery. A lot of great residents from that era, Kim Page, fantastic faculty, uh, some of whom we've interviewed, like Gary Steinberg. So, uh, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Alan, why don't you give the audience uh, and listeners a little bit of a feel of your background, where you grew up, where you trained, went to college and all that. Right, sure, sure. So I grew up in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, I had a fourth grade teacher there that I, I uh, sort of uh, was falling in love with. I think she was quite a, a nice young lady, and she was telling our class that her brother was a brain surgeon who invented a pump for the brain. And I thought that sounded like the most romantic, incredible, crazy thing ever. And from that moment, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. 
And can you tell us who that was, who the surgeon was? Well, I'll tell you that uh, flash forward many years through college and medical school, and finally I'm in the OR doing my first ever neurosurgical rotation. And Gary Steinberg says, uh, hand me the Jackson Pratt drain. And my teacher's name was Pratt. Oh. And I said, that, this little plastic tubing is the pump her brother invented? <laughs> and I, I felt, felt a little like I'd been had, but <laughs> I I put in a couple JPs, and I've never had one break off uh, as opposed to Hemavax. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a nice drain. Um, okay, so so that's when you're growing up in school. But how about college and medical school and all that? Right. So in uh, college, I stayed in Minnesota and went to University of Minnesota. Okay. And, uh, and I realized that I wanted to go elsewhere. Gophers. And, the Gophers, okay. right. Well, I was a Gopher, yeah. <laughs> Proud mascot. <laughs> and I thought I would end up on the East Coast, but I uh, thought I would interview at one medical school on the West Coast, which was Stanford. And, and when I went there, it was so incredible. And I thought, well, I, I could spend four years here. Sure, why not? And uh, that was uh, turned into five years because Stanford at that time was encouraging people to stay longer and do research and things like that. And when I did my neurosurgery rotation, they were... It was the greatest experience because the, the, the surgeons on the service were great. They were very different than uh, many surgeons at the time. Uh, in those days, it was the 80s, the, some, of the, some, some surgical training programs in different specialties had a sort of a way of being deliberately abusive, almost as if it was some sort of a, a hazing to become one of the members. And uh, neurosurgery programs around the United States were somewhat famous for that. And some famous neurosurgeons were notorious for, for it in, in specific. And everybody that I met at Stanford was wonderful. They were great. And when I was a medical student, they were letting me do things in the OR and they're bringing me in and, and treating me with this, uh, what I felt was undeserved respect. <laughs> and, and I thought this, is, this uh, goal that I had based on this little piece of plastic tubing actually turned out to be the right thing after all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and who was the chair then? That was before Jerry Silverberg, right? Right. The chair was uh, Jay Canberry, who sort of more or less founded the program. And uh, he was really in his later years then, so I never got to know him very well. And Jerry Silverberg sort of emerged as the heir apparent, and he was uh, tremendous to me and, and uh, identified me as somebody that he wanted to recruit for the program. And at that time, uh, Gary Steinberg was the chief resident. And he was wonderful, too. And he became chair. Now Michael Lim is the chair, right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's a Hanbury Society. And those of you who know the, the history of controversy, which you lived through some of this, right? All of it. With Frank Conley. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. We could, we could have another episode on that. And I think we could. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get canceled. But, it, but you were there. And, and that was an interesting time. But I really wanted to focus today more on you because... You had a big impact on me. I remember you and Kim Page was a year behind you, I think. That's originally the year ahead of me, but then we switched places for, for oh, various reasons. She did a fellowship or something like that, right? Like epilepsy fellowship? She had, she had stopped out for a little bit. Okay. And so I, I actually skipped ahead, and then she finished the year behind me. But. Yeah, I just remember Steve Chang bringing me in, and you and Kim let me, and Gary Hyde too, let me basically open and close like over 100 craniotomies. <laughs> and so I always laugh at the medical students and residents now that, you know, the abilities I have now really stem from Steve and you guys at Stanford letting me put in central lines, A-lines, Ventrix. Uh, I probably put in more than most residents did just in, just in medical school. So it was an amazing experience. And I even stuck Kim once, closing a dura. <laughs> I was closing a dura and I stuck her. 
And, you know, like you want to think about being like a sub eye and being scared. And I was like, I stuck her with a, you know, a 4 neuron needle. She didn't freak out or anything. And it was, it was really, you're right, it was a special place. And it, I think it still is. Well, I think it is. And I, and I think that your experience is exactly the kind of experience I had where when you show up and you're, uh, you demonstrate some aptitude and some interest and engagement and they identify that in you, uh, you rapidly become part of the family and you, you're ushered in and allowed to do things that are sort of amazing for given your level at the time. And, and I remember when you were there how uh, you, you were your incredible drive and Steve and I just said, this guy's going to be a neurosurgeon. For sure. <laughs> well, I thank you, you and Steve and Kim, and of course all the faculty. We've had John Adler on before, Larry Schur, um, lots of folks. Uh, Gary Steinberg we talked about already. But I wanted to focus on something unique about what you've done, and we talked about this here at this meeting, that it's, it's not uncommon for neurosurgeons to change jobs. But a lot of times it happens either because it's a deliberate career pathway or it's, it's an unintended consequence or non-voluntary, right? But you, you've had a number of jobs for long periods of time. They're not short stints. They're all quite different. They're all in different areas. And I think if I were to go to somebody, as you were saying, for advice on what should I do for work, for a career, where should I work, what venue, what location, what environment, you would probably be the, one of the only people that could give me an objective comparison, right? Well, I think I have a sort of unique experience in that I've got a bit broader experience than many people. So I started out uh, after I finished the training program at Stanford. They were kind enough to uh, accept me on as faculty there. What year was that? That was in 95, 94, 95 I was, I was there. Okay, so you were assistant professor. Right, okay. Yeah, I was in a clinical professor type of thing, okay. a tenure track sort of thing. And it was an interesting time in the history of the department because uh, the, there was a merger mania going on in a lot of hospitals. and so. Stanford was on the cusp of merging with UCSF. And when I joined the faculty, it was quite an abrupt transition for me because when you're a chief resident, you're doing all of the great cases and you're involved in anything you want to be. And suddenly when you're faculty, you realize that everybody has sort of their niche and you end up starting at the bottom of the, of the heap and kind of trying to work your way up. Mm -hmm. And I was staring at the specter of uh, being at the bottom of a much longer letterhead <laughs> after the merger. <laughs> And so I started thinking about perhaps other options because I didn't really have, a, by that time I really didn't have a strong laboratory research interest. I, I was pretty honest with myself in that I was more clinically interested, I think. But uh, you could do any surgery. I remember watching Operate, nothing phased you, complicated stuff, you know, simpler stuff, like everything, you could, you could do everything, right? I'm, well, that's, uh, that's very nice of you to say. At, well, there are fewer <laughs> procedures back then too, right? Just to be yeah. fair. But whether it was an aneurysm or a, or a pituitary or a spine case, seemed like you had a great facility with those. I, I just loved surgery. I felt like I, I was in the right place and I mm -hmm. took to it. And I think the attendings that I worked with demonstrated their trust in me by letting me do an enormous number of things and then hiring me on, which was a really great honor. So you're at Stanford how long? It was about, it was a, just a, just shy of two years. Okay. That's when the merger was going to happen. Right. And, and it's still kind of weird now, even today. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Well, I, you know, at that time I was actually, uh, Fran Conley was on sabbatical. So I was filling her FTE for a time and then. At the VA? At the VA okay. part time and at Stanford part time. So I was going back and forth. So you're at Palo Alto, you leave to go where next? So then I was thinking what, what, my, what my options were, and uh, I found uh, a really great 
private practice in the, the greater New York area located in Long Island. And that's, uh, it was called Long Island Neurosurgical Associates. And, and it was a group of about 10 people. And I interviewed with them and they, they were doing just major cases and they were covering about five different hospitals. And we had a, we, we really clicked. There was a, uh, one of the younger guys there was a guy named Dave Chaliff who was uh, trained at NYU and he's a vascular neurosurgeon and we clicked right away and we ended up doing many surgeries together and it was amazing that being trained 3,000 miles apart we did, tended to do things exactly the same way. But uh, that was a really eye-opening experience for me being in private practice. And, and, uh, but you had residents. We, uh, yeah, one of, uh, one of my group's uh, uh, partners had established a DO neurosurgery residency mm-hmm. at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. And uh, what he liked to say is he, he was able to recruit the best of the, uh, the best of the best of the DO people that were interested in uh, neurosurgery. So met quite a few uh, really wonderful people and some very skilled surgeons that uh, I still keep in touch with to this day. Yeah, Steve Vanny, my former partner, he trained there. You, you helped train him. Uh, I have a lot of friends there. Mike Lefkowitz, who was, yeah, a, who was, Mike one, Lefkowitz. Yeah, he was at USC. Yeah. Mark Mittler, who was a Very good friend of mine. Rotated with us at USC. Yeah. It, it, that's a great practice, sort of a little outside of like mainstream New York, right? And very right. busy, too. Yeah, it's incredibly busy. At, at, uh, when I took over as, a, as the, the chief executive of that group, we had about, I think we had 12 neurosurgeons at that time, and we're at six hospitals by then, and just huge volumes, two of, uh, Two, three members were pediatric neurosurgeons, and we had everything covered, complex spine and cerebrovascular and complex tumors, and we even started a neuro-oncology program with oh, some wow. that weren't directly in our business, but we sort of allied ourselves with other people in practice in the area, and it was, uh, it was really a great period of development for me. And now part of Northwell that Dan Shuba's running. We've had Dan Shuba on a yeah. times, yeah. Well, I, it, when I got there, with every hospital was individual, and then Germania, as I mm-hmm. mentioned before, and North Shore and LIJ merged, and then other hospitals got together, and they changed their name to Northwell, and they became a huge department, and that was an incredible uh, change. But it was run from a business model like a private practice, right? Yeah, we were a complete private practice, okay. and, and um, the, the chief of neurosurgery at a, a, about five different hospitals were individually members of partners in my group. So wow. we really had a, a, a great uh, broad practice in the Long Island area. Right. And you were there for a while. I was there for 10 years. Yeah. And then what, what happened after that? Well, the merger mania again. Yeah. So uh, the, when those hospitals started merging, they made it very clear that they wanted to establish a full-time department, mm-hmm. which was a brand new concept for them. And uh, so I was in many intense uh, sleepless nights of negotiation on trying to see if they would make us their department, but uh, they had some other ideas. So ultimately we had to do a very complex set of maneuvers where some of our members were, became full-time uh, employees there and others stayed in a smaller, leaner group. And, and I was trying to figure out what to do with myself at that time. And uh, my former chief resident from Stanford would call me up every year. He was the chief of uh, neurosurgery at Kaiser hospital in uh, Redwood City, Northern California. And he'd been trying to get me to come back there for years. Uh-huh. And he happened to contact me at that time. And Does he struck? No, this is, uh, this is Bill Sheridan. Bill Sheridan, okay. Yeah. Okay. So he contacted me and I said, and he said, are you ready to come yet? And I said, I think I'm ready. <laughs> so then you moved to Kaiser. <laughs> I, yeah, so I'm back to Northern California and worked for Kaiser for the last uh, 
17 years there. <laughs> wow. Now, as, as I told you this morning, I actually moonlighted there yes. when I was at USC. So I, right. I, I, Northern, Southern are different, right. but, uh, but still Kaiser is a HMO. Now you're working for a, a capitated HMO type setting, right? Yeah. Very interesting. It's just pretty much the exact opposite of private practice and mm-hmm. that uh, you're a salaried surgeon, irrespective of how much you do or don't do. And the, the idea is to take care of the patients and uh, see all the referrals and treat them appropriately and get scored regularly on quality and timeliness and so forth. And as long as you make everybody happy, you keep your job. And it was a great experience there because I really got to develop a lot of complex skull-based surgeries that I like to do. And now, it's no dig on the Southern California Kaiser Group. They're a little bigger. But my understanding is that in Northern California Kaiser, at least for neurosurgery, you guys did a lot of surgery. It okay. wasn't like Southern Cal, I think they were doing like 150, 200 cases a year. You guys were doing 400 plus. Oh, yeah. We were, we were had huge volume. And we, there's about uh, more than 4 million Kaiser members in Northern California. And we have two adult neurosurgery centers, Redwood City and Sacramento. And Redwood City covered two-thirds of the Cashman area. And uh, I think at uh, our group was about 12 or 13 neurosurgeons that fluctuated a little bit. And, and we had covered all of the two-thirds of 4 million patients, yeah. which is just a an lot. enormous number of, of cases coming in and, and calls while on call. And so uh, my volume was just huge there. How many cases a year at oh, the max? I, I don't know. I mean, I, when I, I probably did more cases in private practice, to be honest, is because you're operating at all hours. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we, we only could run one room at a time on like some... Oh, at Kaiser. <laughs> yeah. 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 But so, those people really need surgery at Kaiser. They oh, don't yeah. easily come to you, right? It's, it's well, pretty hard pathology. Yeah. It's, in, it's uh, the, I, I like the system because our incentives are aligned. I mean, a person that has a neurosurgical problem goes through the appropriate referral process and it's not a surgeon's incentive to operate financially or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's like, oh, you have, you have a problem, you're sent here, we take care of it. Right. It works pretty nicely. And then, so you're there for, you said 17 years? 17 years. Well, and then? So uh, I, during that 17 years, I had uh, established a relationship with Kaiser in Hawaii because they had some complex patients from time to time that would, uh, were a little bit beyond what they felt comfortable dealing with there. Mm-hmm. And so they would send those patients to me. And so we had a whole thing where a patient would fly out to Northern California and stay there and I'd take care of them and then send them back when the time was right. And, and uh, over the years, I've taken care of a number of patients there. And then one day, uh, the, the chief of neurosurgery at, at Kaiser Hawaii said, hey, I was wondering if you might want to come and join us rather than think about retiring. <laughs> I said, tell me more. <laughs> So now I, uh, I'm at, uh, I, I work uh, 75% time okay. at Kaiser in Hawaii on Oahu. How many years has it been there? For I just, uh, I just uh, spent a year now. So you're 18 years at Kaiser. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You need a couple more, though, to vest your pension, right? It's, oh, no, I've, uh, I've, I've got that because I'm so, uh, of retirement age, according to oh, Kaiser. Oh, I see, I see. My 60, brother works for Kaiser. And my 60 years plus 15 years of service. And, yeah, yeah, it's actually a, a nice pension setup, but... You know, it's interesting. So, I mean, having gone through these different, you know, maneuvers, and, and now you live in paradise, of course, and you're working a little bit less. You know, young people ask all the time, like, what's the job? Now, the one thing I noticed you didn't say is you haven't been a hospital employee, which is the trend that's happening now, right? That's right. 
So yes, I haven't been a hospital employee, and I think a lot of people don't really understand Kaiser as what it really is is three companies that have a mutually exclusive contract. There's the insurance company, uh, which is uh, Kaiser Health Plan. It's a national company. It's not for profit. There's Kaiser Foundation Hospitals, which is the hospital network, which is a national company, not for profit. And then there's medical groups, and every region has a different medical group. I believe there's seven. And they are completely independent for-profit entities that have a partnership track and so forth. And, mm. and so I was a member of the Permanente Medical Group, and I've retired from that. And now I'm in the Hawaii Permanente Medical Group. Wow. So, you know, people will ask you, I'm sure as they do, you know, what, what, what do I make of the current climate? And, and, you know, trying to predict the future is very dangerous, right? Because you could easily be wrong and usually are. You know... It, to me, it's a time of flux. Coming out of COVID, I've never seen something quite like now, which is there was a period about a year ago where people didn't want to hire. They didn't know what was going to happen with the COVID, reimbursements, insurance, setup, single payer, all this stuff. And there was actually, for the first time I saw a dip in the job market. You know, it always says said that there's like 10 or 15 jobs for every graduate, but it became a little worrisome. And then this year, we're still seeing some of that, which means that folks need to be a little bit more focused on what their real career and personal goals are, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing in that a lot of uh, medical groups and centers academically, and Kaiser certainly are uh, now talking a lot more about joy and meaning in medicine and, and uh, making sure that people, that physicians take care of themselves and avoiding physician burnout because that was such a problem during the, during the pandemic. So of the, of the three environments, and I know that they're, they're not pure, but like, you know, working at Stanford, working at LIJ, and working at Kaiser, and you could split Kaiser into two because they're really a little different, right? What are like the pros and cons of each scenario as you see it? And let's not personalize. This is not you making a yes, comment right, about exactly. how you feel about your job. <laughs> Someone's coming to you, asked you about 2023 or 2025 for them as a new graduate. Like right. I'm, I'm finishing residency fellowship. I'm thinking about Kaiser Hawaii. I'm thinking about Kaiser Northern Cal. I'm thinking about, you know, pure academia versus like a private practice with residents. Like, what are what are your pros and cons on each of those? Yeah, well, I've talked about this quite a bit because uh, I give a lecture every year to uh, medical students interested in neurosurgery at Stanford for just this reason to talk about my mm-hmm. experiences and and I I um, you know just going sequentially the the academic environment is a is a wonderful environment because you have these colleagues that are so intelligent and interested in, a, in taking deep dives into various scientific aspects of neurosurgery. And their whole goal is not just to be neurosurgeons and take care of patients, but also to make advancements in the field. And you have just incredible resources in the university environment, as you know. And I, I remember one day as a young attending, I had this idea about measuring intracranial pressure non-invasively. And, and uh, somebody told me there was uh, Right across the street at the engineering building, there was a group of seismologists who were looking at measuring pressure in the earth, uh, underneath the earth's uh, crust using uh, ultrasound. And so I thought, well, maybe we can do that. So mm-hmm. I, it, and my project ultimately didn't go anywhere, but it was so amazing to walk across the street and, and uh, sit in an office with these guys with a completely different orientation, try to explain to them the structure of the brain and the skull and how it's a closed compartment and what I was up to. and they're they're trying to sort of translate that to what they're doing and then they assigned a project to their graduate students and I thought wow this is this is really wonderful and 
even though it uh, it didn't amount to anything, just the just the cross pollination of ideas was great. So, the university the academic setting just uh, is such an intellectually rewarding thing. It can be a little frustrating in terms of hierarchy and advancement and things like that. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that, but uh, but it, it's it's overly bureaucratic, right? I mean, is that come on, come completely? Yeah, <laughs> it's you know it's you know the you answer to the chairman, who answers to the dean, who answers to the president of the university, and. And, uh, you know, there's, there can be a, a competing agendas sometimes and funding can be a little bit mysterious from time to time. And so there's always those kinds of struggles there. And, mm. and uh, I, I definitely enjoyed my time there. But I think the thing that I was most honest with myself about is that I just uh, saw myself more as a clinician than as mm. a, an investigative scientist or, uh, you know, even doing clinical research. So... I thought my, my career would probably be best served in a different environment. And the private practice uh, scenario was really compelling to me because I, I thought, well, I could be very busy clinically and do what I like, which is taking care of patients. And I um, didn't really, I had some idea that there would be a lot of uh, business to learn, mm-hmm. but uh, I had a fraction of the idea of what was actually involved. Oh, that it's a lot of business. It's a lot of business. And um, in that New York environment, which was in, very intense, you know, with competing groups and competing hospitals and complete competing hospital groups and the consolidation of hospitals and then ultimately that that desire to take these hospitals which are not university based and establish a, a, a department there and then a residency program that was MD instead of DO and, and they built a medical school there on Long Island. It was a whole big deal. So I learned a lot about, uh, about uh, healthcare and and the business behind it there. Yeah, and, what percentage of your time do you think you spent on the business side of things? Well, it's interesting because when I first started out as a junior guy there, I was just trying to stay busy and mm-hmm. uh, achieve partnership. And then when I became a partner and I started to go to the partner meetings and I saw all of these things laid out, I thought, I'm, kinda, I'm interested in this business aspect. So then I rose in the organization to, to become that, uh, the head of the, of the uh, partnership. And then I started getting into these meetings with all these hospital administrators and so mm. forth. And so at the very beginning, I was 100% clinical. And by the end of my time there, I was probably, you know, it was probably 50-50, it seemed like. A lot of time. <laughs> yeah. A lot of time. I generally. remember lying awake just trying to solve problems and, you know, how are we going to get, how's this group's going to survive in this new setting? And yeah. It was, it was really intense. And that was, uh, you know, that was challenging. And ultimately, I learned a lot from it. It's not why I went into neurosurgery or medicine, but... Uh, I think uh, I think it made me more knowledgeable about medicine in general, but the pro the practice itself was incredibly rewarding just because of the volume and being in a community where I was taking care of the people that lived there, and I, um, working with my colleagues there was just was just really great. The downside of it, of course, is that well, uh, let me get concentrate more on the upside first of all, which is that you have autonomy. Mm-hmm. You can decide how you want to build the practice, you know, mm-hmm. where you want to cover what what hospitals you want to be related to and, and how much time you want to spend there and what, what things you can develop in the community. And that was, that was quite stimulating and it's great to be your own boss. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, requires hiring people that know the nuances of medical coding and all of those things. So there's a, it's very involved. But the downside, of course, is that um, as irrespective of the residency program we had at one hospital, it was pretty much my primarily answering the pager when it went off mm-hmm. and I uh, took a lot of call and in a lot of hospitals and 
And I remember, you know, having to stop for gas in, in the middle of the night just because of the distance of some of these hospitals was so great. So not a lot of great personal time there. I really mm -hmm. took away from my family time, I think. And I really never had a moment's rest unless I got on an airplane. <laughs> yeah, but economically very rewarding, right? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, you know, it's a business and it's, uh, it, it was always a growing business and a lot of fighting to keep it that way, of course. Sure. Especially with all the threats to, to private practice. But we, we did very well and we had uh, very nice lifestyles in a very lovely area. Mm -hmm. So that, that was great. But uh, I think that uh, it was made quite clear to me that my time was coming to an end there just because the consolidation of the hospitals and the desire for them to have full-time employees was not mm -hmm. something I wanted to be part of. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's harder and harder to be autonomous, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so now you moved back to California. You're, you're in, uh, you're, it's, is it, it's not Oakland, it's Redwood City. Redwood so City, it's right. near Palo Alto. Yes. And what, so that's a major shift in gears, right? Major shift in gears. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was uh, at the very beginning, it felt like I was on easy street just because I had regular hours mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they try to be super efficient there so they don't want us operating late in the day. Um, it's very different because, of course, you know, in an organization like that, it's prepaid care and so they only want you to do surgery that's absolutely necessary and if you're doing something in the evening... And, it's only should be emergency surgery. It shouldn't be right. electives where when you're in a private setting, the hospital, uh, they, they, they make their money in the OR. So if you want to do an elective case at 8 p.m., they'll give you a room. But if you were, if you were the younger Alan Efron, if you were earlier out of training, would you have found that frustrating that you wanted to do more surgery and you're held back a bit? I, I th well, I think initially I probably would have, but um, I think that um, it's... In, in some respects, it's a turnkey practice and that uh, unlike uh, going into private practice where what, when I joined that, all my partners had referrals that were established and they would, and then our, our practice had to make an announcement, oh, we've got a new guy, so go ahead and refer to him. And so it started out a little bit lean, but then I was taking so much call that I was doing a lot of cases. So that's, that's sort of the formula in private practice. You get flogged a bit in the early years. And Kaiser, when you start in a place like that, there's just a river of, of referrals coming into your department and I the new guy so I had plenty of time so I'm seeing lots and lots of patients mm -hmm. right away and never a dull moment there in the clinic and then you know everybody has a certain uh, percentage of patients in clinic that end up requiring surgery so so what are the negatives negatives of working for Kaiser I mean, yeah well, the, the um, negatives is that a lot of times uh, just like in the academic setting there's there's politics uh, mm -hmm. there are administrators that can be a little administratively heavy mm -hmm. and I think that was the thing I really liked about private practice is that I you know we were doctors running things and at Stanford it was very much top-down and at Kaiser it, it turned out to be a lot of times top-down too but they restrict like what you can do right I mean if let's say and, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth but yeah because you still work for Kaiser but <laughs> my, my impression about Kaiser is that it's great. It, there's so many positives. You can't really be sued easily. Um, you do the right thing, so you have a great sense of, you know, you're doing the right thing as a doctor. But on the other hand, if the salary you're being paid for whatever reason is not adequate or not, you know, what you feel is commensurate, it's very hard to make a higher salary in any way, whether it's through, well, let's say, consulting or uh, patents or 
you know, doing legal work. A lot of the typical channels people turn to if they say, listen, I, I need to make a little more money, right? It's very hard to do that in Kaiser, right? You're absolutely right that, that there's, a, sort of a, there's a prohibition against doing anything, using your medical license for anything other than taking care of Kaiser mm. patients. Across the board for all doctors. Right, and, and if, if anybody is doing something outside of Kaiser, they have to get special permission to mm, do that. I see. And so that applies to, you know, for example, consultant work or research interests or medical legal things or or anything else like that. You can't, you can't uh, have your own side business, really. Yeah, some of my friends, they get more than half their income from that kind of stuff. And, right. You know, that's, so, so, so they would find it stifling, but I, but I do see the positives. And then now in, in Hawaii, like, is it different or is it the same kind of setup? It's the same kind of setup, and uh, I, I think that in, in the commonality of the two places is that when you're recruiting for a spot, it, it ends up being a very special kind of person that you're recruiting because a lot of people that, like yourself, might come through and, and we'd say, oh, you're just the kind of guy we need. You do all this great spine work. And then you'd say, okay, what's the, what's the package? And you'd say, well, uh, that's not what I'm, quite what I'm used to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, but we would, then we would say, but the lifestyle, that's yes. so nice. The intangibles are Yeah, wonderful. you could go home and have dinner with your family, for example. Yeah. You could... You can actually schedule a dinner date and be on time for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, I think, are our first Kaiser doc that we've had on. I want to, we haven't had Sim Ra, I want to, I want to have Sim Brower on at some point. Yeah, we um, He's great. Um, but I, I think, you know, as we are finishing up this chief residency season, a lot of folks already have their jobs. Some are, don't have their jobs and some are looking as PGY6s at the following year, right? Right. Give them a word of advice. Let's say for the people that are, they're, they're imminently going to be employed within the next 20 months, let's say, hopefully yeah. employed. Yeah. You've gone through this a little bit. You're, you know, you're 62 now, right? So you've yeah. been and through. Just, just about. Yeah. Just about. <laughs> Give them a little bit of advice. We have a lot of listeners, a lot of folks trying to figure out their lives um, as a nursery. Right, right. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because I think you... you well, for me personally, I look back 10 years ago and say like, oh, I didn't know anything back then. And back then I did the same thing. So there's just this, uh, this constant uh, cruel of wisdom that you think is, uh, well, I wish I'd known this 20 years ago. I think when you first come out, you don't think anything about retirement, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, how a place like Kaiser's got a great pension plan and they really want you to, to stay with them for your entire career. And and they make it very comfortable to do so, which is great. And uh, so a lot of physicians spend their whole career there and have decades of service. I think that it's really important to, to uh, think about things like that, not just in terms of the, the number that somebody writes down in an envelope and says, here's what you could be making. I think you have to be very honest with yourself about how uh, you see your life coming through this. You know, are you, if, if, for example, if you're single as a resident, you're looking for a job, are you going to be interested in having a family? And if so, do you like spending time with them? Yeah. <laughs> because there are certain scenarios where that's a little more difficult than others. And I think that you have to um, decide, uh, you know, like what, what well, if you're, if you're going to go into a, joining a practice, there's a sort of a period of time in which you're on a proba probationary path, shall we say, pre-partnership, and you want to know exactly how tough that is. Is it worth it to go through with that? And uh, there are, and I've talked to some of the people at this meeting, there are some uh, practices that have been a little bit predatory that way and that they haven't been entirely honest and, 
and a, a personal personal join them, and suddenly they're taking way more call than they thought, and working much harder, and not making the money that they thought they were promised, and sometimes the practice starts dissolving. So mm -hmm. you want to look for, if you're looking at a practice, you want to have everything spelled out, you want to look for stability. So my practice that I joined in New York had been in existence since, since the 1960s, so I thought, mm -hmm. oh, stable, nobody leaves there, so yeah. it's, that's, that's great. I think that, um, you know, if you're looking at all options, including academics versus private practice versus something like Kaiser, do you, do you want to be an academic? I think uh, sometimes people are very much uh, interested in being a university faculty, but they, they really don't know what that involves, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, it involves a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you don't see when you're doing your residency, um, you know, in terms of academic committees and negotiating and budgets and things like that. It's like a different kind of business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Efron, I want to thank you for, for your contributions to our field, also for being generous on your time. I'm sure this will be well-received and people are going to think hard and long about the best choices to make in life. So thank you for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.